What if I told you music can heal your brain? That those long road trips with your friends blaring music were actually good for your mental health? What if those nights of music in the park were actually healing you? Those breakup songs? The ones you bang your head to? The sad ones you play to make you feel even sadder? And the endless nights in bed listening to your favorite songs were helping you? As we know, therapy is an important part of mental health care. However, it's not accessible or even effective for everyone. With the new rise in alternative therapies from cognitive control training, neurofeedback, and acceptance-based therapies, it's no wonder that more adventurous therapies like art and music therapy are making a comeback. According to the American Music Therapy Association, music therapy is the clinical and evidence-based use of music interventions to accomplish individualized goals within a therapeutic relationship. So what does that mean exactly? Simply, there are no limits in the use of music therapy. In fact, music therapy has been used for depression, substance abuse, Alzheimer's disease, autism spectrum disorders, and cardiac and neurological conditions. Can it really be that good? Recent studies kind of contradict these assumptions. In today's episode, we are talking about music therapy and its potential applications and limitations. We discuss with a music therapist and a graduate student studying music in rehabilitation to discuss advancements in the field. Let's get into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Think Twice. It's me again. For those who don't know me yet, my name is Ev, and I am your host for this season of Think Twice. I'm a PhD student in neurosciences at Queen's University, and my research focuses on the usage of gene therapy in central nervous system disorders. Today, I'm talking with Honey. Honey, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hello. Yes, I can. Hi, I'm Honey. I'm a crisis counselor working with homeless women in Kingston, Ontario, and a master's student in the Center for Neuroscience, Neuropsychiatry. My research focuses on music therapy and stroke rehabilitation, and we're currently reviewing the use of neurologic music therapy in stroke rehabilitation. Wow, that's really interesting. So I know personally, for me, music is very therapeutic. I do listen to it quite a bit, and I know it affects my mood and my headspace, if you will. But I'm really interested to know what music therapy is exactly and how it came to be. Yeah, that's a great question. There are several versions of how music therapy came to be. Most notably, in ancient Greek times, philosophers believed that music entered the soul and would travel throughout the body with the blood. And they would often play these in different areas as a therapeutic setting. So Plato believed that music bypassed reason and penetrated into the very core of the self, causing great impact on the character. Um, And he would say that rhythm and harmony would find their way into the innermost soul. And we actually know that this is true. Uh, Research has actually determined at length that music therapy affects behavior and cognition, even seeing physiological changes in the body, including changes in blood and neurotransmitters within the brain. But in more modern history, some of the oldest reference start around the 1800s. More specifically, in 1789, physicians and psychiatrists would use what they believed to be music therapy to treat medical diseases. 
what they defined as music therapy was actually music listening or passive music listening, which we'll get into more today. They would also look at songwriting, lyric analysis, improvisation, and more with goals of increasing movement, cognition, speech, language, and mental health. New advances in the field have begun integrating music therapy into more traditional approaches such as cognitive behavioral music therapy, or CBMT, an interesting twist on the more traditional cognitive behavioral therapy, which we'll discuss a little further on. In one recent study, researchers reviewed the use of passive music therapy in mood change, which was loosely based off a 2003 study, and several cities around the world have begun to adopt musical approaches to deal with a variety of behaviors, including subway terminals in London, UK. Researchers there have actually found that playing music or relaxing music has drastically seen a decrease in crime and agitation and aggression in these areas. Mm, That's really interesting. It's really cool to know that there's just so many ways in which music can be considered therapeutic from a historical standpoint and that the way that we approach it and how we apply it just really seems to evolve with time. We know that music therapy is obviously used in a therapeutic relationship, but how is that applied exactly? That's a great question. It really depends. Each type of music therapy is presented in a different way. Passive music listening, PML, for example, is presented in the form of background music. So while a person completes a task, such as activities of daily living, included but not limited to dressing, eating, cleaning, reading, watching TV, etc. Think about the music that's playing in a mall while you shop or in a doctor's office. Then there's guided imagery and music. It's similar to guided meditation. There's also other specific brands known as Nordoff Robins, be used to support children with disabilities which focuses on music creation and then of course neurologic music therapy or NMT which stimulates changes in the brain by using different behaviors and movement with and without music which is the focus of our current research and as you mentioned there is CBMT which combines cognitive behavioral therapy with music therapy Uh, And as we know, cognitive behavioral therapy is a form of psychotherapy, which is used to retrain thoughts and behaviors that are considered to be unhelpful or inappropriate by building new skills and behaviors that challenge these distorted thoughts. And these are just a few of many. I actually had the opportunity to discuss with certified music therapist Kimberly Doland uh, about some techniques and um, information in regards to our current project. Yeah, that's really fascinating to think that there's many different types of music therapy and some that people can really relate to, like the passive music listening that I imagine most people do without even thinking of it as some form of therapy. I'm actually pretty curious. There's so many different types of music therapy, just like in other types of therapy, really. Some may offer more benefits to certain individuals while they may be inefficient for others. Would you say that this is also true for music therapy? Definitely. I mean, it really depends. Uh, What we are currently seeing in our research is that most people respond in some fashion to therapy, although others more so. Um, And as my conversation with Kimberly had noted before, um, music therapy works for people who are interested or in that state of mind. And at different times, it's helpful in different ways. We have found that people who are more engaged in music, which we are defining as higher interest, appear to be benefiting more behaviorally and mainly in their presentation. So this means that we will see things such as just generally more interest in participating in the group 
or more excitement when they're about to come to the group or afterwards or more discussions within their daily lives. Nurses have stated that they seem more happy and there's some more interaction, but we don't see this translating with the data, although we see it in their behavior. So although these changes are happening, our quantitative results show similar levels of change among the cohorts, meaning that we don't see anything that we would consider to be significant. There is no significance or change in their response compared to that of their peers. And that the overall perception of music therapy is helpful to their recovery. That being said, we also know that certain types of music therapy are designed to support in very specific ways, such as neurologic music therapy, which is the basis of our research. For example, neurologic music therapy uses the knowledge of shared neural systems to create interventions that affect perception and production in non-musical areas of the brain, meaning a person does not need to have musical capabilities to benefit. NMT treatments include things such as cognition, speech and language, and motor, designed for use in neurological settings. In short, what this means is it takes the body's ability to create a movement such as moving your arms and it mixes it with music and helps build these pathways. Some of these specific techniques include things such as sensory motor, so things that are more specific to different types of stimulation. I won't get into it, it's a bit complicated, but ultimately we use techniques that help stimulate these different areas within the brain. Yeah, that's super interesting. And you mentioned that people's perception of music therapy is really helpful to their recovery, but in reality, how efficient is music therapy? So that's what we're currently seeing right now. We believed that it would be quite useful. As I mentioned earlier, we have found some contradictions. We previously believed that music therapy could be helpful in any manner or magnitude, as seen by these studies in the UK around classical music playing in a passive manner to reduce aggression and criminal behavior, saw significant decreases in these behaviors. Although our current research shows low or no level of significance in participation, We've actually created a whole other study that specifically looks at passive music listening because we believe that this would be so helpful. It's really interesting that it's been implemented in the UK and that it seems to work for them and to reduce aggression, but that in your study, I mean, music therapy might have very little effect. Yeah, I think the effectiveness is really dependent on the person and the type of therapy, the perceived effect. I feel that they're is always some level of effect, but it's dependent on multiple variables, as with all therapies. And as with my conversation with Kimberly, she kind of discussed some reasoning why she thought that it wasn't as effective. Here's Kim on the subject. Right. So you've also stated earlier that music therapy is very person specific. And we just talked about this a little bit. Can you talk a bit about who would use it and why? Yeah, a lot of different people can use it, actually, which is what makes it so interesting. Um, So such as individuals with Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia, as we know, music can evoke some form of emotion or memory and are often associated with decreases in agitation. A recent article published by Cambridge University reviewed the impact of music therapy on inpatient psychiatric wards for people with dementia, and it ultimately found that music therapy lifted mood and reduced agitation. And so we feel sad about it versus when we're in music therapy, if we're, um, or even community music, it would be interesting to see what that distinction is. Um, You have that music, and yeah, you might just be listening, 
And then, of course, you know, there's so many other factors of what we are doing in music therapy and um, interacting with people or actually actively taking a role in our wellness, which some people might not have connected with. Other people, you know, will ask after an intervention, what was happening with that or what were you trying to explore? And so we have that element of now getting to take an active role in our care, um, which again brings that piece of empowerment. So it can do this in a variety of ways. It's also just a good way for people to socialize and interact, especially when their ability to recall or remember things is hindered. So this gives them a better quality of life. It also is helpful for people that come from trauma or PTSD, and they have often found success using music as a way for them to express their emotions or to get through an emotion. It's also used in pain treatments. A recent study by LJ Mercer and colleagues found that a single session of music therapy improved mood and decreased pain and participants were very satisfied with their sessions. It can also be used in learning. It has been successfully used as a training aid for people with autism spectrum disorder. Music therapy is often used to improve communication skills, reduce stress, improve social behaviors and motor functioning. It has been noted that typically people with autism spectrum disorder are better able to discern pitches in notes and music than those without. It can also be used for mental health and mental health disorders, substance abuse, and so much more, which is really one of the reasons why we're quite excited to discover more about how and and what it can do. So from my understanding and from what you seem to be saying, it seems like it could potentially have applications for a bunch of different types of disorders. Now, one other thing that I'm wondering is, since it is a non-pharmaceutical type of therapy, is it regulated or can anyone be a music therapist by pressing play on a soothing music playlist on Spotify that they might have created? Yeah, that's a really good question. Honestly, I thought, you know, you just apply, you write an exam and you're good to go. But after having a conversation with Kimberly Dolan, the music therapist who is currently working on this project with myself and my supervisor, I've actually learned quite a bit. In order to become a music therapist, you actually have to have an undergraduate degree, then need to register with the board. You then have to take a course, which can be one year or two year, depending on the type of registration. You write the exam, you have to complete hours, a thousand hours at minimum, but again, it depends on the type of registration. It's a lot more work and you can't just go in without having that background or education. Ideally, too, the undergraduate degree needs to be in some sort of social work or psychology based because you have to have an understanding of psychotherapy. Most often, music therapists are also registered psychotherapists. Here's Kim with a little more. I'm actually pretty curious. There's so many different types of music therapy, just like in other types of therapy, really. Um, Some may offer more benefits to certain individuals while they may be inefficient for others. Um, Would you say that this is also true for music therapy? Definitely. I mean, it really depends. Uh, What we are currently seeing in our research is that most people respond in some fashion to therapy, although others more so. Um, And as my conversation with Kimberly had noted before, um, music therapy works for people who are interested or in that state of mind. And at different times, it's helpful in different ways. 
We have found that people who are more engaged in music, which we are defining as higher interest, appear to be benefiting more behaviorally and mainly in their presentation. So this means that we will see things such as just generally more interest in participating in the uh, group or um, more excitement when they're about to come to the group or afterwards or more discussions within their daily lives. Nurses have stated that they seem uh, more happy. I won't get into it. It's a bit complicated. But ultimately, we use techniques that help stimulate these different areas within the brain. We are registered therapists, and I imagine that they apply their work in some kind of clinical context like most therapists do. Yeah, they do. I mean, that's a bit of a tricky question. It really depends where in the world you are and, you know, what type of therapy that you're using. It can be used clinically, although it depends on a variety of factors, including funding and awareness. Currently, music therapy in Ontario is not covered under OHIP, so it's not often used. So in most cases, it's used in a paid setting uh, with insurance policies as it falls underneath a psychotherapy. We do see it frequently used in dementia and retirement homes and long-term care as it's covered underneath the recreational departments. Although most people are not aware of music therapy or that there is any coverage, so they don't often access it or have limited access to it. Actually, in Kingston, there were only a few registered music therapists, and up until recently, there was only one registered neurologic music therapist, which is Kimberly Doland, which is who we are currently working with. But then on a non-clinical level, we as a society actually self-medicate, if you could think of it in that sense. As we discussed before, passive music listening is the use of music therapy in a passive manner. So those drives in traffic listening to the radio is actually healing you. Humans often use music in a passive way, which we now know can be beneficial depending on a variety of factors, which means it is self-regulated and often used outside of a clinical setting. Our goal actually is to increase awareness in some capacity and perhaps even show OHIP or the Ontario government that it is beneficial and should be included in treatments uh, such as stroke rehabilitation or even have some sort of partial coverage. We strongly believe that including it in a variety of treatment plans would prove advantageous. Right. And I can definitely attest that those drives home listening to music always make me feel a little better, especially when I'm engaging with the music by, you know, singing, tapping fingers on the wheel, you know, that kind of stuff. And you mentioned something earlier about a contradiction regarding passive music listening. What did you mean by this? From my understanding, you seem to be saying it might not be as therapeutic as we give it credit for. Yeah, I'll definitely get into that in a second. But it's a great point that you're saying that you're tapping and listening along and singing. Actually, singing with other people can release oxytocin, which creates like a stronger bond between yourself and other people and helps make you happy for lack of better terms. <laughs> and then, yes, as, as I said before, passive music listening has shown significant decreases in behavior and aggression in the UK. I know we keep coming back to that, but it was so significant that other facilities around the world, including my graduate supervisor, have decided to take that on and look at it further. So much so that we've decided to include it in research as a separate cohort. We had actually originally used it as our control group, but our current research doesn't show really any significant change. Participants have stated that there's a change. Having said that, the data does not support this. So what does this mean? That is what we're currently reviewing 
is this a placebo effect? Is this more behavioral? Are we asking the right questions? Are we looking at the right neurotransmitters or the right chemicals that are released within the brain? So hopefully in the near future, we will be better able to provide some insight into this. Other contradictions? Yes, it evokes emotions and these can be unfavorable and can actually cause a decline in behavior, specifically in depression, feelings of loneliness and sadness. So this is something that we're definitely trying to review and see when that happens. When do we tip those scales? It can also be overstimulating and can trigger people with learning disabilities or dual diagnosis to behave in ways that are not supported for functional living. A study by B. Nandy et al. 2023 reviewed the use of delta wave stimulation and attention. It actually found that there was an increase in exogenous attention, one's ability to process external cues, although it did not have endogenous training. So the internal cues. Yet a study in 2018 found that preferred music causes a decrease in delta waves and thus distracted states. So the presentation of delta waves increases attention, yet less distracted states saw a decrease in delta wave activation. And we know that delta waves can actually cause sleep, coma, anesthesia states. And furthermore, a study in 2016 noted that neural feedback training using delta waves to increase states of concentration and function. So it is unclear when delta waves within music are helpful or are they hindering. It really depends on how they are used can cause different outcomes, all of which can be beneficial based on the desired behavior, although they contraindicate one another. So it's really hard to determine. Yeah, it can be really confusing. And I guess like many emerging research topics, there's still a lot of contradictions and a lot of uncertainties and mysteries and stuff like that. And I know you mentioned music therapy in the UK. We talked about this a lot throughout this episode, but what about other places in the world? Yeah, there are actually several other countries within the world that have their own governing boards. Obviously, Canada, the Canadian Association of Music Therapy, the American Music Association, Australia, Austria, the Czech Republic, Finland, and so many more. It's really interesting to see what these different boards also require for a music therapist. So it varies, which tells us that there's so much more to know about music therapy than we ever thought. Mm, I'm always glad to know that Canada is taking part in such important therapeutic movements and, you know, on the forefront of it. And, you know, we've also mentioned your research a little bit earlier, but I'd like you to elaborate a little bit more on what you do exactly. Yeah, we are researching music therapy in stroke rehabilitation. So what does that mean? We believe that music therapy should be included in treatment plans as it is easily accessible and enjoyed by many. Our research mainly focuses on neurologic music therapy or NMT for short, although we've also included that passive music listening, which we discussed a little earlier. In our current study, participants either complete music therapy of passive music listening or neurologic music therapy intensively. They do this by completing 10 consecutive sessions of music therapy, excluding weekends. With the passive music listening, we provide the participant with a device that has a curated list of music they listen to. And with the neurologic music therapy, we have Kimberly Doland, who comes in every day, and we do those therapy sessions. We actually have them at 3.30 until about 4.15 in the day. A part of the project actually requires us to complete psychiatric assessments with each participant prior to their intake into the program. These include questions about their mood, anxiety, depression, and sleepiness. 
At this time, we also gather biological samples, blood work to look at their neural transmitters in the brain. So changes in the brain's ability to heal. Uh, specifically, we're looking at brain-derived neurotropic factor, also known as BDNF. And this indicates plasticity or the brain's ability to heal. We also look at cortisol levels, which are stress levels. And these can be affected by sleep, depression, and physical activity. We also review physiological assessments such as blood pressure, which can be an indicator of stress, and heart rate, which is relative to anxiety. As previously discussed, passive music listening essentially is listening to music in a passive manner. So as I mentioned before, we provide a device with a curated list of music that plays for 45 minutes for 10 days. The music is relaxing in nature, so similar to spa music or elevator music. We also have classical pieces on there. I've brought a device with me today and would like to play you a brief section of what that music would sound like. Once the participants have completed these sessions, they are discharged from our program. So at this point, I repeat those psychiatric assessments again for mood, and I also look at physiological assessments. Biological assessments were completed only for our neurologic group. This was due to a delay in ethics, and we were unable to include it, unfortunately, in the passive music listening group. I would have loved to have seen what the changes were like on a neurological scale for those people to see if even though we didn't see changes in behavioral assessments if we would still see them in the brain the neurologic music therapy group as mentioned completes these 10 consecutive sessions 45 minutes in length of music therapy with kimberly dolan and myself and they complete the same assessments the questionnaires the heart rate and the blood samples the psychological assessments are reviewing sleepiness, anxiety, depression, and music engagement. And what we have found so far is that changes in the passive music group were not significant. So we saw an average music engagement throughout the group of around 48 to 49 percentile. And we did see changes within sleep and anxiety and depression, although they are not considered to be significant. Although our semi-structured interviews did show a perceived decrease in behaviors and feelings of improvement due to the music listening, this is echoed among the neurologic music therapy group, um, and lab analysis has shown significance of treatment in our neurologic music therapy group, and psychiatric assessments have shown some significance as well, meaning that people are less depressed and there are changes in sleepiness after completing the neurologic music therapy sessions. So it's really interesting to me that the perception of the therapy itself seems to be helpful in these cases since people seem to feel or perceive that they're less sleepy and less depressed when they do complete this therapy, even though it's not coming out as significant in your data. And as per usual in science, you know, once you start asking questions and answering those questions, there's always more questions that arise and that come up and more questions always lead to more and more questions. Yeah, definitely. The more we dig into it and learn, the more opportunities for further research we are finding with music therapy and really seeing how underfunded it is. And thus, we're not able to explore it. We're not able to look at those other forms of treatment, those other forms of therapies and how they can be helpful. So it's really exciting to see how these things are changing and to be a part of that. So by providing this information, we're putting you know more feelers out there and letting people know that, hey, we have seen these changes so far. Yes, there might not be changes in this, but maybe let's look at that more. 
actually an article I mentioned before on pain, it didn't provide us with much information, although it was creating such a buzz in the field that the doctor I'm currently working with at Providence Care sent it to myself and my supervisor and was really excited about how interested people were and how they were talking about it. So this just kind of bodes well for our research and for music therapy as a whole and uh, it increases kind of that interest. There's actually a facility in Boston that has created a device that uses neurologic music therapy and music therapy to assist people in improving their gait or their ability to walk. And it's actually been quite successful. It's not completely marketed yet because they're still doing clinical research on it, although it's been quite helpful. So I think in the next few years, we're actually going to see that device available, which is really cool, I guess you could say. Um, So just lots of interesting things like that happening around the world. There really doesn't seem to be any limit to what we can do with music therapy, how we can test it and use it in different areas. Actually, one of the most notable neurologic music therapists or creators, Michael Tout, currently works out of University of Toronto, and he's been doing a lot of interesting things as well. So it's always great to kind of look and see what he's doing and to have someone so close and accessible for us to be able to review and discuss with and do training with. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, as we've discussed a little bit earlier, this is really just the beginning. I really look forward to seeing how the field advances in the upcoming years. So we're going to finish off this episode with Kimberly Dolan to discuss her role in your project on music therapy and her role as a music therapist in general. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Hello, thanks so much for having me. Um, So I am Kim Dolan. I'm a certified music therapist and neurologic music therapist living and working in Kingston, Ontario. I work with a wide variety of individuals, mainly within the realm of mental health, but quite eclectic in working with individuals within rehabilitation or dementia care or kiddos as well. Yeah, and so that's really within the realm of music therapy and outside of I'm a musician myself and use music for my wellness and my expression. Um, I am the therapist creating the structure, facilitating the sessions and planning all the interventions that we are actually doing within the neurologic music therapy sessions. Can you tell me more about yourself? Yeah, so like I said, I'm a certified music therapist. Um, I have been practicing since 2017 when I finished my schooling. I'm from Kingston. Well, not born and raised, but been here since I was about eight. So I came back to Kingston where I was able to start my work here. And I've been practicing ever since. I have now established my own music therapy practice called Synergy Music Therapy and Wellness Services, which operates here in Kingston as well as with my colleague in Bermuda. And as a music therapist, what are your general thoughts about music therapy? What's actually happening when we're listening to music or when we're actually engaging with it or, you know, what type of music is beneficial? And people ask me that all the time. They're like, what's the best music to use? And it depends. And that's why I think you see such distinctions because it is so dependent on the individual and innate to the individual. And so when we have just music playing, for some people, yeah, that'll be extremely beneficial. That'll be really motivating. That'll help regulate the mood. For other people, we might not actually be listening. We just kind of like tune it out. Or if it's not music that we connect with or feels motivating, sometimes that just is background noise. Or, you know, it's a song that we 
used to sing in choir and can't sing anymore. And so we feel sad about it versus when we're in music therapy or even community music. It would be interesting to see what that distinction is. You have that music and yeah, you might just be listening. And then of course, you know, there's so many other factors of what we're doing in music therapy, interacting with people or actually actively taking a role in our wellness, which some people might not have connected with. Other people, you know, will ask after an intervention, what was happening with that? Or what were you trying to explore? And so we have that element of now getting to take an active role in our care, which again brings that piece of empowerment. On that note, thank you so much for spending some time with me today, honey. And a big thank you to Kimberly Dolan for answering your questions. I really hope our listeners enjoyed this episode and learned from it as much as I did. Also, as some of you already know, we want to give our listeners the opportunity to be part of our next episode, which will focus on grad school, you know, the process of getting in, preparing, and surviving grad school. If you have any questions that you would like us to answer in the episode, click the link in the description and ask away. I also have one last important message for our listeners. Unfortunately, due to budget cuts in the Center for Neuroscience Studies, we are no longer being financially supported um, to produce this podcast. But have no fear, we're not going anywhere. We love what we do and we aren't going to be giving up anytime soon. So how can you help the podcast? Well, we are now accepting donations and other external funding sources, which go 100% to having our episodes professionally edited and published on our various platforms. To be honest, without the editing, the episodes would be about two hours of mostly me going off topic and no one wants that. So if you would be willing to donate, please email us at thinktwicepodcast at outlook.com. We really appreciate your generosity. Also, if you're part of the Queen's University community, feel free to reach out and volunteer with us. We're always looking for students who are passionate about science translation and evidence-based content creation to join your team. So no previous podcast experience is needed. You can just DM us on our social media or shoot us an email at, you guessed it, thinktwicepodcast at outlook.com. And if you like the podcast episodes we've been putting out there, make sure to follow us, rate us, five stars, and share us. You know how it goes. We want to get the word out there to as many people as we can reach, and we really appreciate your help in achieving this goal. On that note, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Think Twice, and as they say, see you next time.